0: to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny, motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli. And today, we're picking back up with some familiar faces. I've got Matthew Duffy and Grant Foster back in the studio to finish up our discussion about dog training and eight faces of aggressive behavior, a master solution to barkers, growlers, and and biters, which uh, if you're watching this podcast by video, you can see there on the screen, and you can also see behind uh, Matthew and Grant there up on the wall. Uh, This is uh, the second installment of uh, Matthew's uh, books, uh, of, of course, starting with the ten natural steps to training the family dog, building a positive relationship, which we discussed on this podcast in episodes seventy-four and seventy-six uh, of the podcast. Of course, I'll link to those podcasts in the show notes, and would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to those uh, because these topics sort of build on each other, right? And we talked about in previous episodes how these two books were originally written as. Really, one piece, right, Matthew? And and how right. uh, it, it seemed more natural and, and maybe better for for readers to to address these separately, to, to build the foundation first with the ten steps, and then address particular, uh, more specific uh, problems or behaviors uh, with the eight faces book. So um, we left off last time with defensive aggression we were about halfway through the eight faces book and we'll pick up today with territorial aggression but first of all uh, grant matthew welcome back to the show
1: thank you for having us good to be
2: here always alex you're a wonderful host and we always like the platform where we can spew out uh, the experiences we've come across in the dog world so hopefully it's helpful to your viewers in some fashion or another
0: yeah and for those of you who are uh Picking up with this podcast for the first time, uh, like I said, we, we recorded a previous episode about the eight faces of aggressive behavior and then two, uh, previous episodes about the 10 natural steps of training the family dog, uh, would of course encourage you to listen to those, but just briefly, um, Matthew, of course, is the owner of Duffy's Dog Training Center in Jeffersonville, Indiana. He's written three books, actually. We've talked about two of them. The third one is Franklin, uh, the man behind the United States Commando Dogs, uh, which we may discuss in a future episode. Uh, and then Grant uh, is a family. He's, he's in the family, and he's joined the family business, and I think has been at it, what, what did we say last time, seven years now, Grant? Mm-hmm. Is that right? right here. Yeah, yep, So. Right so uh you've got quite a bit of experience behind your belt now as well and, and are tagging along to to uh allow our listeners to to enjoy your expertise on these topics as well. So so thank you both again for joining the show. Uh well, so before we get pick up with defensive aggression and the transition into the, the next uh face of, of aggressive behavior, territorial aggression. I think it'd be good just for our listeners just to emphasize how important the manners are as a foundation. Can we just sort of recap those and then maybe get back into the, the, where we left off with defensive aggression and then territorial aggression?
2: I think it, it's a great idea. It's a perfect starting point. Whenever there's a discussion about behavior shaping, canine behavior shaping, if you don't launch from the foundation of canine self-control of manners, you're really going to be off track. And so, you know, we talked about the Eight Faces book and the Ten Natural Steps I wrote originally as one larger piece, and it was daunting to look at, and that's what the editors told me from the beginning, you know, it's it's too much for somebody to absorb all that. And I was a little against breaking them up originally, but then we see the wisdom that that 10 years later after uh, working with our clients and these books as texts, we almost think we need to break them down more. So the 10 natural steps involves five handling manners, canine self-control exercises, and five formal commands, classic obedience exercises that people think of as dog training, healing, sit, lie down, stay, and come. All true, all necessary, after we accomplish first composure. Just hang out, dog. We're not doing anything in particular. You're part of the family. I want you to hang out without bothering anybody in any way. That's really step one. Step two, you can think of, or let, let's back up with this step one. Go with the flow. So if I need to uh, clean your ear or clip your nails, I, I want you to go with it. I don't need sit, stay, or heal. I need you Composed. That's where training begins. Food control, our family dogs are integral to our family unit and family activities. That means food everywhere, whether it's the kitchen table, a uh, guest over the living room for snacks, or we're having a pizza while we watch a movie. I want my dog with me. so therefore it means he must get a grip on his voracious appetite. And Alex, we talk about this all the time, and uh, again my nephew's. Part of this plan, he has working dogs himself. Working dogs means these guys are driven. They're uh, assertive. They're potent. They're powerful. That's the way we want our personal dogs. And that means powerful appetites. I don't want that to go away. But at the same time, I don't want my dog eating the pizza off the coffee table. I'll feed you before. I'll feed you after. This is not yours. So food control, freedom to move about. But don't help yourself to food that's not yours. No commands for these things. Self-control. Visitor control, another important concept. When we have outsiders coming into our space, both Grant and I want our dogs to be watchdogs. We want our dogs to be in the social activity. So they need to be able to have a grip on how to manage guests in their proximate personal space. That means accept who we invite in. Even though my dog may say, I don't like the way this guy smells. I don't like this person's looks. Our our approach, mental approach is, I don't care what you like. I didn't ask you. (laughs) I want my friend to be comfortable in my house. I want my dog to be comfortable in my house. So you need to be able to accept these guests coming in as we say you need to accept them. Now, open door control. As we live with our dogs, we're constantly going in and out of portals, in and out of doorways. I want my dog to naturally defer to me as I go in and out of doorways. So he gives me a chance to open up, step out in the front porch and say, hey, coast is clear. Come on, man. I don't want to be formal all the time with this. So it's a natural relationship for my dog to follow me in and outdoors waiting patiently for me to say, let's go inside, outside, walk or heal. But he defers to me naturally, no leash, no formal commands. This is part of how we exist one another. This is how we exist together. Now, the walking exercise, this is truly where the rubber starts to meet the road. We teach our dogs, our personal dogs to casually walk left of our imaginary center line. So, somewhere on our left side, somewhere is within a slack leash. You say, well, what length of leash? Whatever you prefer, Alex. Uli says, I like a four-foot leash. Grant Foster says, I like a six-foot leash. Okay, cool. Whatever you prefer, you assign to your dog. When I walk my dog, I'll give him six feet of leash. Keep that loose, dog. I don't care how fast I walk, how slowly I walk, what direction I walk. I need you keeping left of my center line on a slack leash without me having to be a drill sergeant to keep you there. So the theme here with the manners, my dog, Grant's dog, our client's dogs carry a responsibility. You need to be handler focused. You need to be self-contained and you need to manage distractions that are constantly interfering with us in the environment. You need to do these things without rigid commands. You need to do these things, dog, without me mm, formally restraining and steering you because we don't want that job. We're busy men. We want to be busy and have our dog hang with us in our busy lifestyle. And we also assume this handler deference, critical, this self-control for the dog, critical, and also no excuse making here. We are busy men in busy environments. That means all forms, myriad distractions are going to interfere with our interaction. Count on that dog. I need you thinking through the distractions so that you are on my team regardless of what's going on. Now, that's about as brief as I can describe
1: <laughs> the handling
2: manners. Now, if you want to input anything, you go ahead and do that. No,
1: I think you did an excellent job. It's almost like you uh, <laughs> wrote a book on manners. Uh, but yeah, same yeah. thing. Composure, handler deference, all these things um, in themselves can actually wean a lot of aggression before it gets out of control. Excellent point. Did you hear that point? You, if you
2: establish the foundation of manners, guess what we don't have much problem with? aggression out of control, and aggression being a natural facet of the dog's makeup will be naturally controlled if we establish that foundation of manners. So we're already ahead of the game by establishing manners.
1: And as important as it is for the dog to learn manners, it's even more important for the handler himself or herself to learn how to establish these manners. This is the first line of communication you'll have with the dog, whether you're starting at, you know, eight weeks when you get the puppy, which we recommend, you know, give a little puppy time, but start laying down guidelines. Uh, this is a stage in which you learn to truly communicate with your dog in the easiest fashion. That way, when it comes about in more rigorous or more intense moments, you have a, a know-how that you can fall back on, as opposed to, I'm starting training with my aggression management. That just makes it much more difficult. yourself, setting yourself up for failure.
2: And you know what, Alex? I think this naturally defines the challenge, what we just discussed in writing an aggression management book without having the foundation of handling manners to start with. So when the editors say, hey, we need to divide this up, well, how am I going to do that? I can't pull out how to manage aggressive behavior. I can't pull it away from canine self-control. I can't pull it away from first command formal responses because those are the tools that allow us to manage this intense, and it's not always negative either. Intense, uh, controlling, hostile behavior—however you want to describe aggressive behavior—the tools to manage this lie in the ten natural steps. You've—that's why in this book, as you go through it, I refer back to ten natural steps constantly. But again, we see the wisdom in breaking the the information into. Palatable parts, honestly, because it's tackling this book after you've gone through the ten natural steps is task enough in itself, and so it's it's all turned out the way it should. But one book is mm. inextricably linked to the other. Period.
0: Yeah, and and I like your point too, there, Matthew. That you, the the eight Faces of aggression of aggressive behavior book refers back to the ten natural steps. On a regular basis, to emphasize the importance of those manners those foundation that foundational relationship uh as well you know that that canine tango dance that we talked about absolutely uh, that that captain that team leader role of the handler uh and there's no perfect solution right You could have written one one larger book uh <laughs> I don't know if that would have been better or not. there are certainly downsides. To that, But neither of these books, is not like you took a small book and, sp- and split it into two smaller books, right? I mean, both of these are significant books on their own. And I could see how having them together may have been intimidating for somebody <laughs> to pick up as one dog training book. So one thing that I like about it is that if people start with the 10 Natural Steps book, which is less intimidating on its own, I think they will be motivated then to continue on their, their journey with the, with the eight faces. So I I certainly like that part about it. Uh, and then I also like that, you know, a lot of times people have, uh, behavioral issues with their dog, whether that's aggressive behavior or some other issue. Uh, and they'll just jump right to the, they'll look at the index or the table of contents Mm -hmm. and then jump right to the, to the section that's applicable and i think that's a, a a dangerous thing to do so i, I like having, having it separated for that reason as oh, well um because you can't skip the the foundation but uh we could we could argue the the merits and and the cons of uh splitting it versus uh keeping it all together uh, i'm sure for for quite a while but uh i for the record i i like the split uh so i, I don't think you should have any regrets in in that regard um with that, with that said, I always like we've talked about the manners and the the relationship building and the importance uh, several times on the podcast, and I just don't think we can emphasize that enough. Uh, but with the Eight Faces book, uh, as people have gleaned if they listen to the last episode, the way you address these aggressive behaviors is oftentimes similar but what's important is how you identify the trigger right is is how you set up the scenarios to train the dog uh not to have these aggressive uh behaviors so identifying the trigger is is incredibly important right for setting up the training scenario and uh knowing what it is exactly that that is uh bringing about this aggressive behavior so with that in mind we left off last time with defensive aggression, and the next chapter in the book is about territorial aggression. Can one of you, either Grant or Matthew, talk about what's what's the difference between a defensive aggression and territorial aggression, and why does it matter, that distinction?
2: Well, I, again, I'll start off, and I'm going to turn over to Grant here in just a bit because you and I had talked uh, pre-recording a little bit about... Um, these differences. And the title of the book could have been eight triggers for aggressive behavior rather than eight faces. The aggression or the aggressive display from the dog looks the same to a lay person. And oftentimes the trigger, the exact trigger is overlooked. But like you just mentioned, if the trigger isn't identified accurately, well, then the training approach cannot be established accurately. And when we talk about the difference or similarities between defensive aggressive regression and territorial aggression, the uh, trigger management is uh, very distinct with territorial aggression. For a dog, the moment of infraction or the only point of concern is the perimeter. Outsiders, as defined in the dog's mind, compared to the insiders. And when that perimeter is pierced, that is the moment of action for a dog that is territorially bent. We have defensive cases we work with all the time, uh, individual dogs that aren't so concerned about the entering or exit of territory, piercing the perimeter, but it's the proximate space that matters to them. So in other words, we can have a very defensive dog says, as long as you give me three or four feet, you can come and go, you can break into my house, you can climb the fence in my yard, just don't get within three three, three or four feet of me. A territorial dog says, no, I can see and I define my space, and I am, think of it as um, born excited, titillated to keep my territory clear of outsiders. Even though the outsider may be a very frequent, uh, friendly neighbor to the owners, the dog still says, by definition, you live outside of the space. So when you pierce the fence, the gate, the front door, walk through the garage, and you come into my space? That's important to me. I need to address that. And the importance is, so many times folks fail to understand, it's an exciting job for the dog. He's not guarding territory out of fear. He's titillated by it, he's born to do this. He is driven to keep his territory clear, of outsiders. And of course, speaking of self-preservation evolution, that makes sense. He doesn't know this. He's not going to go through the um, cognition to uh, define why that's important to him. But keeping territory clear of intruders, competitors, danger means that he and his pack, his young ones exist in safety and peace. They preserve the limited game that's within their territory. And all that is going through his mind. With a defensive dog, not so much that's going through his mind. All he knows is you make me feel uncomfortable, and this is just about me. And if you get any closer, I'm going to have to react because I can't peacefully, mentally coexist with danger that close to me. Now, you step outside, uh, you kick one of my family members. Okay, as long as you leave me alone, I'm good. The defensive dog can be just as ready to bite as the territorial dog. The triggers are what's different there. Yeah. What do you when, think we work more on?
1: That's a tough one. Because they do blend. They do blend. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a common theme throughout this book, because a lot of these do overlap yes. with each other. Some of them aren't necessarily synonymous, but they do coincide. Um, I would define defensive behavior as uh, my space. Right, stay out of my space, where territorial is stay out of our space. It's a much broader space. Very cool, I like that. Actually, yeah. when like it's that. um especially for our clients. Like he said, you could break into a defensive dog's house and he might, you know, pee on the floor, bark at you and cower to a corner, but as long as you don't go into that corner, you're, you're probably gonna be fine. Uh, where a territorial dog, it could be you're letting your dog, you know, take a leak in my yard, and that is enough of a trigger for that dog to take the fight to you, or a defensive dog is gonna let that outsider, get close enough, close enough, close enough. And then he gives you the fight. He's trying to avoid the fight altogether. Uh, A territorial dog, like you were saying, gets excited about the the prospect of somebody stepping into a stereo. I would say we deal with more defensive behavior. And I would say that's because most people write off territorial is so natural. It's just a dog being a dog. Uh, This defensive behavior is a much harder thing to avoid. Um, This is a dog I'm going to have in my house. I want to have family over, friends over, and everybody wants to pet my dog. So it's one that gets brought to light a lot more than I would say a territorial behavior.
2: You know, I think yeah. you summed up wonderfully. And again, any kind of rewrite or a, a, a addendum to the book, I think the our space, my space, that defines it for a lay person immediately. Uh, the difference between why do you call my dog defensive, not territorial? Why is territorial defined more important, important here rather than defensive? Because it is just that. It distills into my space concern or our space concern, And one doesn't necessarily overlap. In fact, in a lot of cases in that, it doesn't. To be a good territorial dog takes courage, takes a lot of energy. The boldness. Mm -hmm. Yes, it takes a driven dog. He's gonna make the rounds. He's He's going to patrol. A defensive dog says, no, that gets too busy. That gets too dangerous. I'm gonna be in my space. And as long as my space is not infiltrated, I can live with that. Territorial dog says, I got energy to burn. I was born to patrol. I'll keep our space clear. I like that. Yeah. We'll, we'll use that. And I think yeah. we need to pass it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. Like 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 this is right. the young future. I got another man here. Jordan Fields, another up-and-coming good young dog man. They're going to be running with this later on, Alex, so you'll be talking to them, not me. You'll see, yeah, uh, he had some good ideas, but his language is old, outdated. He doesn't know what <laughs> he's
1: talking about. He taught me everything, but he has no idea what he's talking about.
0: Well, I, I like I like the uh, the MySpace OurSpace distinction. Uh, it, 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 you know, and sometimes Matthew, I mean, you've been doing this for over forty yeah. years now, right? And uh, sometimes yeah, just 30. having a, a fresher yeah. set of eyes to a situation oh, yeah. helps. You know, helps drill down what's really what's really going on. Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, and, and the example I, I, in the book that I like that I think a lot of people experience uh, is this mailman example. For the territorial aggression uh you know and it, and it sort of emphasizes or illustrates the sort of self-perpetuating cycle uh yes. that uh, this can create right is that the mailman shows up i bark they disappear right it, and it's
1: and he did his job like, and he gets rewarded for it by the guy disappearing and he can't wait till tomorrow morning exactly right. because you think what a success this is for the dog
2: you know a lot of mm-hmm. folks say uh, my dog he you know how dogs are with uniforms he, he doesn't yeah he hates uniforms now the uniform he's not dumb he's put together <laughs> people that dress this way don't get the message they keep hmm. coming into our space i run them off and they come back the next day i run them off and for the dog he doesn't really care how you dress it just flags for him it profiles for him you're one of them <laughs> you're one of those people that don't get it no, you're going to keep coming
0: yeah, or one of those guys that drives a box truck, right? The big brown truck, <laughs> right? right? Uh, so, t- t- tell us a little bit about, just for example, with the, the mailman scenario. What, what would the the training scenario look like? I mean, because you don't know when the mailman's going to show up necessarily. Some for some people they very good point. they know, uh, but it's hard yeah. to set up a training scenario around when the mailman's going to show
2: Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Okay. Now you bring up um, really mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. important point. Um, a, a number of them, but very important point. We won't be there to manage the dog's behavior often in situations of territory. So what that means, as opposed to, say, defensive uh, management, managing the defensive trigger, I could arrange to be there always if Mm -hmm. they're going to be approached because it's uh, in our personal space. Now, if you say, I want my dog to be able uh, to run the yard, fenced in yard while I'm gone at work. But. I don't want him to harass the neighbors bark at them or bark the mailman that comes every day. Uh, you're setting yourself up for failure because you're not there to manage, shape, mm. you can think of uh, channel the dog's behavior. And here's how we do that. Like we mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, we operate by scientific method, to be honest with you, or scientific approach. Meaning if we want a behavior to repeat, we need to reward the behavior. If we want to extinguish a behavior, we need to connect it to a negative consequence. And the dogs choose. The dog says, wow, I get rewarded every time I do this. I'm going to do this more often. I receive an unpleasant consequence, and it could be, depending on your approach or your lifestyle even, a reprimand, uh, leash and collar action. Uh, you can use uh, any number, remote collar types of deterrence. But if you connect this behavior you don't like consistently with a negative consequence, the smart dog says, I don't want more of that negative consequence, so I'm going to let that behavior go. I love the positive consequence this behavior brings about, so I'm going to keep repeating this. Now, remember too, an intruder, a passerby, a mailman, they approach the scene, the dog barks the expression of his aggression. That in itself is perpetuating, self-perpetuating for a dog. It's stimulating and titling. He loves to express himself. And not only does that feel good, but the passerby keeps moving until finally he's out of scene. So the dog said, that felt so good. God. And I cleaned my territory. What? Reward on top of reward. and. I'm out in the backyard with nothing much else to think about for nine hours while pops at work. What else is there for me to be engaged with? Now you think of that setup. He can't wait for another passerby. He can't wait for a delivery man so he can express himself, feel good, clean the territory, feel good. You say, but I want him to stop that. All right. Here's the approach. Any opportunity you have to put that in check with supervision while you're home, Uh, a day off, on the weekend, set up, have your neighbor help you, because we do that all the time. Uh, My friend, introduced to Alex Kliash, he is here today helping us set up some learning experiences, and I asked him as a friend to help me, and he said, I will. And you said, you mean, you ask people, and in my case, I pay people also. To assist in the dog training process, yes. So at home, I do the same thing. Hey, neighbor, I'm going to be hanging out in the kitchen or the back porch. Would you mind uh, coming up the fence and saying hey, hello to me and talk a little bit? And my dog displays unwanted territory behavior because we can have that discussion too about wanted That's and unwanted behavior, so- right? A whole different um, comment section maybe, uh, but I'm there now To address the unwanted territorial behavior with a negative consequence, and I can set this up uh, sporadically while I'm available to do so, supplying the negative consequence that I am in agreement with consistently every time he displays that unwanted territorial behavior.
1: Okay. When goes mm -hmm, back. To this book. All right. What we mentioned (laughs) in the beginning of teaching these manners, you're learning a very calm way to set up not such intense situations, but again, this idea of my dog will pick up on the concept, I'm setting him up with food control. Meaning if I'm just holding up food and I throw it on the ground, eventually my dog's going to pick up on the idea this is a test. It's no longer realistic. So you It's have artificial, to start... phony, yes. Yes. And you have to start becoming creative with making it look more realistic and more realistic until eventually it happens in real life and the dog still thinks that as a setup. Uh, so the territorial aggression is just a Uh, a more involved version of that but we get asked all the time how do i keep him from doing that if i'm not at the house
2: yes okay now
1: don't we right so here
2: we make this shift okay i have recruited my neighbor to help a couple neighbors i have my friend alex kliash coming over to be the uh pseudo meter man uh that he's going to read the meter and i need to control my dog in that situation And I really do these kind of things with my dogs up and coming at home. So I set up realistic training scenarios so I can supply the appropriate consequence connected with the associated behavior. When I am not there to supply the appropriate consequence, I need to remove my dog from the opportunity to freely express himself in that way. Meaning, I'm going to work the next day so, if my neighbor comes out and I'm not there and my dog gets to express himself, the neighbor leaves, he's double rewarded. The UPS man comes, drops off the package, he barks at him, the man runs off, he's double rewarded. All the work I did the previous day, wasted time. This dog says, Wow, it's still as much fun as I thought. It's still as stimulating as I thought. And with my work schedule. I can't be there every day. So I have to have a plan. Here's the plan. I'm going to work today. I need to have you confined inside. I need to have you uh you could go with me. I need to have someone watch you away from your territory so you cannot freely express yourself and be rewarded by that unwanted behavior. And you said for the rest of his life? Nope just until we make a new habit for the dog. The dog learns, here is when I'm allowed to be territorial, here's when I'm not. And you say, well, when would he be allowed to be territorial? Hmm? How about uh, 11 o'clock at night? Uh, I've got, uh, I'm inside the house and I put my dog out in the yard to get some exercise, use the bathroom. And there is a um, strange person uh, walking past the house 11 o'clock at night unusual for my dog to see that. So my dog says, I tell him, wow, that is unusual. Strange man walking past our property at 11 o'clock at night. Good job. Love that. Doesn't take him long to put together. Ah, there are conditions where territory is wanted, promoted, and paid for. And there are conditions where it's not wanted. And you say, our clients ask all the time, You mean the dog can pick up on the differences between the right and wrong? Absolutely. In fact, dogs are so good about picking up those nuances that oftentimes they take advantage of their owners or handlers, convincing them, I can't get that. What do you mean? That's too complex. You're going to have to expect less from me. And you could ask, well, why do we know what the dogs can give? Because every day of the week, Year after year, decade after decade, we see what dogs are capable of. And we become uh, intimate with their thinking process and say, from, with a brand new dog, wow, I see the intelligent expression on his face. He gets what you're saying to him. He is just tuning you out right now. I said, did you read his mind? No, I'm reading his body posture. I'm reading his expression. And this is pattern for me that I have witnessed and managed thousands of times over 44 years. That's what we help people do, identify.
0: And that, I like that point, too, about how uh, dogs are very perceptive about how they do have this ability to perceive nuance. Uh, but, but to do that, right, and the more nuanced it is, the more important, I think, that this, this point is that you have to be consistent. Right. And you have to take advantage of what you call in the book, training momentum or momentum in the training. Uh, Would you mind to say a little bit about that? Because I think, right, if you if you correct the dog one day, but you don't the next, that creates confusion for the dog. Right. So you have to take advantage of sort of uh, that momentum that you've built in, in training your dog by having consistency.
2: Uh, right. And you can comment on inconsistency, the damage it does versus consistency and the success that can come, especially with aggression management.
1: Well, i say it's not so much creating confusion in the dog; it's creating right. a, a pattern. He said, "Well, sometimes these rules apply, sometimes they don't. I'm going to risk it. I'm Take gonna, advantage. I'm yeah. going to see if this is one of those times that doesn't apply." Uh, I tell my clients a lot: dogs think in black and white ways. Right? It's it's A or it's B. They don't necessarily understand this this murky area of Sometimes and maybe it's uh, what you're saying with the uh, visitor at night. It doesn't happen often. It's easy for the dog to, uh, really, he's thinking that already. That's why he's barking. That's why he's sounding off. He said, there's somebody on the road. You know, I don't care what dad's rules are. That's weird to me. And I'm going to bark to try it, right? Dogs live in a world without explanation. So they have to try and error and try and error. And he said, I'm going to try it. This seems important enough to me. I'm willing to risk a correction. And then as handlers, our response is good boy. And he says, okay, so in this particular moment, in this particular situation, I'm allowed to sound off. I'm allowed to have this territorial side. Um, you got to think of dogs making decisions based on value, right? Uh, What do they find personally valuable? It could be food value, uh, the adrenaline dump they get when they do this stuff. And if he is out in the yard all day long barking at somebody with no repercussions, that is a very, very valuable option to him. And then the few times we're able to work on this and we're not very consistent with working on it, It's a very non-valuable thing. And until we can start getting this more often than we get this, he's always going to choose this, even though he knows you want him to do this. He says, more often than not, this pays off a whole lot more than this. Uh, So I'm going to jump
2: on something Grant says very, very valuable here. Much less confusion in the dog and much more taking advantage or making a wiser choice from the dog's perspective. He said, I know you probably don't like this. But man, it gets me high and I get by with it more times than I'm not. So why wouldn't I do that? And so you say, dog, are you confused? You know, you, do, you, are you, do you think I like you doing this now? No, no, you don't like it. But, but I do. it's, a again, a adrenaline dump. I, I'm charged up. You'll get over it. It's proven in the, the past. We get over these bumps. I still get my fix and we move on. So more taking advantage with inconsistency then confusion. Now, there is some confusion involved. Now, Now, there are areas of training especially, but in most aggressive display situations, it's dogs learning with inconsistent fall through inconsistent handling. I can freely express myself, get this rush, and life goes on. Even though you get upset for a little bit, or the next day, you might try to check me for it. Day after that, and the day after that, I'll be able to express myself again. So it is. The dog managing his world, uh leading the canine human tango dance in the direction he wants
1: to. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and the more consistent you are, right? You you gave the example earlier with territorial aggression about taking the when you're not around for for instance the mailman delivery, uh taking the dog away from that situation yes. so he doesn't have that self-perpetuating cycle yes. forever when you're not there. That the more consistent mm-hmm. you are with the training, the more you take advantage of that momentum in training, the sooner he gets his freedom, right? Well, I mean, that's
1: fine tune what you expect. Like we both expect territorial behavior from our dogs with mm-hmm. consistency and, and constant upkeep of this stuff. We can have a very refined dog towards the end of the training um, to where even during the day, say I have a visitor, my dog doesn't sound off. He's not supposed to, but then this visitor has given me a weird feeling with a single word I can Turn him on to territorial. I can turn him on to his defensive side um, with a lack of consistency. And I'd say what creates confusion more than lack of consistency is a lack of consistent expectation. Right? Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, I, I'm not in the it's mood to correct my dog this morning, so I'm going to let yeah. him get away. with, Even if I'm there, but I'm not in the mood to take action. I'm not in the mood to praise my dog for the things I want. Then he is get, becoming confused. He said, "Well, you rewarded for me you rewarded me for this yesterday, and now nothing's happening. Or I was supposed to get corrected, and now it's not happening." as opposed to a lack of consistent training, meaning I know when you're not here, I'm going to get away with it. And it's not confusion <laughs> on that part.
0: Right. That makes sense. All right. So we, we've talked about the importance of identifying you know, the, the trigger because that, that helps the handler figure out how to set up the training scenario mm-hmm. to correct the behavior. Now, we've got a few more Uh, faces or triggers that we need to talk about. Uh, We've got protest aggression, intolerance aggression, possessive aggression, and then finally social aggression. Uh, Let's, if you don't mind, just say a little bit about uh, protest aggression first. And then, you know, there was this sort of minor distinction between defensive aggression and territorial aggression. It seems like there's probably a similar, yes. little maybe gray area with protest and intolerance. Do you mind to talk about those combined?
2: Exactly. And again, it's, you're a wonderful host and you're so intelligent. It's, it's uh, really a joy talking with you about these subjects because you think you were here with us every day. And you're picking up <laughs> on the uh, intricacies of identification and handling successful training that, A lot of professionals don't get. So, Alex, uh, my hat's off to you. You're a cool fellow to talk with about dog training. Now, (laughs) protest and intolerance. uh, Again, an overlap, but think of it this way. With protest, I um, I have a canine personality that is refusing to cooperate. And it could be with getting in a crate. It could be um, he's refusing to cooperate to lie down when I say. Um, Intolerance, think of it more of an irritable canine personality. Um, So I'm napping on the, my dog's napping on the couch, and I sit on the couch too close to my dog, and I rock his body a little bit or I bump him, Uh, and he growls at me. I'm not telling him to do anything. Uh, I'm not trying to force his hand. I'm not trying to force him in any kind of behavior. He's just telling me, you're irritating me. So back off, scoot out. Don't rock the couch. Don't pet me now. Uh, When you walk past my, and again, I don't want to get too much into uh, possessiveness, but you walk too close to me as I'm enjoying a bone or a nap on the bed. Yeah, exactly. There's another overlap. So think of um, this intolerance as an irritable canine personality that in a lot of cases came into this world this way like there are irritable human beings born into this world. That irritability was not injected, interjected or created by the handler necessarily at all. Now, With protest, we can have a a very strong canine personality who would protest uh, putting him in a crate or uh, protest, uh, again, lying down or even clipping his nails. But he's sitting on the couch, he's napping. I sit down next to him and I use him for a pillow. He said, man, I love you, dude. And I I pick him up like a sack of potatoes and roll him over here. Does that bother you? He said, you can't bother me, man. He said, I go with it. I, I, I like everything we do together. again a very you you think of it as amiable personality, not irritable. But then I take this same personality, say, okay, you're you're really going with the flow. We we've got a good relationship, you're in good mood, I need you to get in the crate. No, I don't want to get in the crate. No, I'm not gonna do that. It's not irritability. It is refusal to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And with the irritable dog, the intolerant dog, I'm not asking to cooperate or not. He says, you have crossed the line of acceptable behavior. I didn't even know that. I was trying to make the bed and you were on the bed and I had to scoot you over with the sheet a little bit. Oh man, that irritated me. These are scenarios that we deal with all the time, by the way. So the bleed over, the overlap between um, this intolerance and protest, uh, definitely it exists just like the territorial and defensive categories, triggers, overlap. But it is important to identify a dog. And again, all these, these, this terminology, um, the, the territorial, defensive, protest, social aggression, uh, this is these are words, identifiers, triggers that we need to know about so we can identify this dog is triggered by these things so we know how to set up our training scenarios.
1: Facilitation.
2: Mm -hmm. Because if we have a dog that is uh, intolerant, eh, often, I wouldn't even go as far as say usual, often he can be um, protest. He can be very resistant to um, training or behavior shaping, but not necessarily.
0: One thing I'm curious about, uh, and this is a question that's that's born out of my personal experience, which is relatively limited, especially compared to your experience. So that uh, with protest aggression, as opposed to intolerance aggression, it seems like uh, that a dog might be born or more be more likely to be born with sort of this intolerant uh, behavior or intolerant attitude. Whereas with a protest, it seems like that can be uh, sort of built up develop. through emotional emotional yeah. handling, yeah. Um, and where, where
2: built up with confidence and success in a dog, mm-hmm. because in the beginning mm-hmm. a young pup doesn't really necessarily know or buy into the fact he can refuse successfully. But mm-hmm. if through mm, accidental experiences or happenstance he realizes I refused and they gave a little bit, wow. Next thing you know, he's saying that is a tool that I can make better use of. So it can be developed over time with this um, experience chain of success and very
1: well, it, small successes at that. Yeah, that, very, yes. Very little important. things like okay, I'm teaching my puppy to sit at eight, nine weeks, ten weeks. You're just teaching the idea of sit, uh, and then that one time you say sit and he doesn't, and you say, oh, whatever, he's just a puppy and that progresses over six months, then all of a sudden that I'm just not going to do it turns into you cannot make me do it, right? But those little successes he had as a puppy are very uh, permeated in his brain. He he remembers, no, remember, I'm allowed to tell you when I'm done with something. And the biggest difference I would say between intolerance and protest, intolerance is a, a limit to what I will allow you to do as my handler, right? Meaning you're not allowed to wake me up like that. You're not allowed to bump me as you're sitting on the couch. Uh, where protests is there's a limit to the amount I will allow you to ask of me as a dog, right? Meaning, again, you can bump me, sit on me, do all, all the things you normally do, but but don't ask me to lay down, right? And the polar opposite, you might have a dog that is intolerant, but very obedient and doesn't protest uh, right. for that exact reason. He said, you're not you know, doing something to me that I don't appreciate, like waking me up, bumping me. Uh, it could even be petting you for too long, right? Exactly. We, we see people get bit all the time and that's a hard trigger to identify as the dog's yeah. getting pet, he's enjoying it, he's having a good time, and then he's not. Yeah. It's it probably one of our most
2: common um, intolerance situations to deal with. Oh, yeah. And it really is hard to even explain to folks. Well, I love him. He loves me, and I can pet on him. And he was enjoying Usually, it. yeah. But then all of a sudden, he just got tired. It must have been the way I looked at him, or I must have pinched him accidentally with my foot. No, he just got tired of it. And dogs communicate um, naturally through this vocal expression, the threatening facial gestures, through hostility. That's how um, a dog can make things happen. So it wasn't that big a deal to the dog. You're petting me, you're petting me, you're petting me. Okay, I, that's
1: enough. That's <laughs> would usually the intolerant bites are the, the lesser of bites. Yes. Uh, it's much more, it's just the same way our slip collars or pinch collars and electronic collars provide a, a dog canine-like correction, that is what the dog is typically doing with intolerance. It's not, I'm trying to take a finger, I want to rip your face off. It's, it'll still, you know, you can still get stitches from it, but it's usually just a, a quick bite and it's over with. It's not, in the dog's mind, very hostile. It, it's what he would do to another dog if he woke him up or uh, to a puppy that's biting on his tail too hard. It's not about
2: destruction no. or destroying the uh, competitor or the enemy. It's simply back off. You cross
1: the line. And they're Here. usually in a very stable state of mind when they are that Absolutely. aggressive to intolerance. It's not, again, I lost my mind. I, I don't remember who you were, so I bet you. It's, no, I remember our relationship, and I'm allowed to tell you when I'm done with you petting me. Uh, again, I don't hate you. I'm not trying to kill you, but I'm going to let you know as soon as I'm done with the pet.
2: And one of the differences between intolerance and protest, um, it's sometimes harder to Tell I'm flipping the protest trigger, excuse me, the intolerance trigger because I was i, I wouldn't even pay attention to you. I was sitting on the couch to watch a show uh I was petting you, and we liked it, you liked it, and all of a sudden you don't with protest it's much more uh definable definable it's a willful i'm going to make you get in the crate I'm going to make you lie down, so I know the moment's coming, and I know he doesn't like this so. It is easier to prepare for and define, and honestly, to protect yourself
1: from. I'm saying, intolerance mm-hmm. is probably the hardest one. It is. to facilitate safely. Um, we're big advocates for muzzles when you have an aggressive dog. It just allows us to to push limits much quicker and much more efficiently and much more safe um, than say just hoping the dog doesn't do something. Whereas with protest, I'm going to have a leash on, I'm going to have the collar on. I'll, I'll be much more able to take action if need be. Setting up intolerance. Uh, oh. it, it's very difficult because dog has to be comfortable. He has to feel as if he is truly just hanging out with you, in order to flip that switch. Um, so muzzles are a big part of that, and we we really do believe in those uh, when used appropriately.
0: I want to come back to the to the muzzle uh, as a tool, and yeah. y- you mentioned the the e collar earlier, and in, in, uh, so I'd like you to comment about those those tools mm. and and of course the leash which we've talked about uh on previous episodes but basically you want these tools to become unnoticeable to the dog eventually yeah. and they're not of tools the of again. oppression they're not tools to punish the dog right uh, so I, w- I want you to say a little bit about that but before before you do one thing so with protest aggression and, and i like the point that you made about how just like with these other forms of aggression, with dog against dog aggression, with predatory aggression, with defensive and territorial aggression, that there's sort of this self-perpetuating cycle. Like if mm-hmm. it, if they try it and it works, they'll do it again, and they yes. may do it even more intensely. So. But one thing about protest aggression uh, in particular, and I think maybe even intolerance aggression uh, as well, is it seems to to build from a lack of that foundation that we talked about, that, that canine handler relationship, uh, where maybe the, the, the handler was, you know, they weren't calm when they were delivering corrections. They, they maybe used words, they yelled at their dog, they, uh, you know, introduced emotion into the, mm-hmm. to the training, into the canine relation, the canine handler relationship. Uh, unlike defensive aggression and territorial aggression, there's, there's not that handler canine relationship breakdown uh Mm -hmm. right with protest aggression i would you mind to say a little bit about that do you see that uh in your training facility where the the owner comes in and and they're yelling at their dog or the you know they apply when they apply the correction they're Mm -hmm. emotional about it does that amplify the protest or yes
2: in fact what you've defined here is a unique condition with um, this canine aggression management. With protest and intolerance, often the handler is the target. Where dog-on-dog aggression is the dog. Defensive aggression, it's the outsider coming in. Territorial, it's those who are not part of the family. But with protest and intolerance, it's the handler that is the target. And so Mm -hmm. it does make it much more challenging to deal with. But you keep in mind, With all aggressive management, canine aggressive behavior management, if you think of the aggressive display in a dog, the aggressive reaction in a dog, you think of it as a fire. Emotion, energy from the handler can fuel or feed the fire. So we need to be very careful with that and we try always to be calm as we're dealing with our dogs. But when a dog displays aggressive behavior, we have to be especially uh, cognizant of a calm, steady approach. I'm going to go to a human analogy very quickly, and I'll let you uh, chime in here. Um, and again, I do talk about this. I use this analogy in the Eight Faces book of uh, human temper. And this analogy, I think, really helps our clients Uh, put in perspective what we're dealing with. I have a dog who displays aggression for whatever reason, whatever is triggered. And let's just say right now, a defensive response. Here comes a strange person into this dog's proximity and the dog defines this as too close, threatening position. I don't like it. I'm defensive. This is an emotional fire, not unlike a temper. Uh, You think of an emotional reaction in a human being, and it is uh, high energy. And so you think now, as a human being, I'm displaying a bad temper behavior towards another human being. So I'm in the throes, the thick of a rage, and I have another human being that immediately steps in. Or the one I'm in target with, and throws aggression back at me, and do you think that helps to quiet my fire? No, it does the opposite. Now I'm really ramping up because you're putting more threat, more energy, more fuel on my fire. Same way with dogs. Here's the challenge when we talk about protest and defend, uh, protest and intolerance. The dog has threatened me. But now I have to be all controlling with my emotional reaction because if I say, you do that to me, that's your right. I'm dumping more emotion on that fire and therefore it quickly spirals out of control. Easier if my dog, somewhat easier. If my dog has targeted another dog displaying aggression. Easier for me from the outside to be calm, manage this. Let's redirect, no, you can't do that. Let's go this way, let's go that way. When I'm the target, much more challenging to be in calm, cool control. And again, just to your point, with our equipment, whether it's a remote collar, the slip collar, uh, Elizabethan, a, a general leader, a pinch collar, our goal is to be able to wean away from all that gear eventually because we want to build through habit relationship rules that the dog doesn't challenge. The tools are needed to make rules important, but once the dog tests thoroughly and buys into it, he doesn't have to keep testing the rule. He said, I know, I know what this brings about in the consequence, and I know you're consistent, and this is gonna be the outcome, so I'm not going there. Cool. I don't need the equipment to continue this teaching process over time. That is the the beauty of proper use of equipment. Oh yeah.
1: You wanna chime in here? Um, With you on the point of, um this fueling the fire. When it's coming back on the handler, it it falls into this. My baby has never done that to me. She's never shown me aggression. She's always been that way with strangers, but never back at me. And one of the hardest things to tell clients is you you can't, you can't give it back. Uh, You you can correct the dog. You can, you can take action. But if you do that with emotion, um, some dogs enjoy that. That's their squeaky toy. They they get fired up and you yell at them. They said, look, I got everything I was looking for. Uh, It's, like we all got buddies back to human analogies that like to run their mouth at the bar every now and then and <laughs> it's not with the hope that everybody's quiet as he does it he's hoping to get that reaction from somebody yes. right um so i think people take protests and they take intolerance so much more personal and they feel as if they've done something to the dog or they've wronged the dog when a lot of the time especially with intolerance the dog was born a little grumpy yep. uh, intolerant to the idea of always allowing people to do things around him. um in protest i I think dogs come out that way too sometimes. Like my dog showed protests at a very young age because of his, his bloodline. He's he's supposed to be so confident. He's assertive and confident. He, he thrives to be the team leader. So when anybody challenges that, even at seven, eight weeks old, I challenge him as a team leader. And you imagine that relationship. Uh, he would show me protests. He would say, Look, I, Dad, I love you. I'll allow you to put me on my back and roll me over and all this fun stuff, but don't tell me to get in my crate. Uh, And again, knowing better, I didn't take it personally. I actually looked forward to that because, again, it means I've got a very, you know, people say stubborn, hard-headed. I use the word driven. Uh, I have a very selfishly driven dog right now, but I can take that drive, mold it into a team drive that will be very beneficial for me and my family.
2: Because he is a capable confident, assertive, working canine personality. Without those characteristics, he wouldn't be a working canine. And we're well aware of that. And this brings up another point, too. With all forms of aggression, but especially the one that mystifies, the two that mystify owners the most, the ones where the topics were are on now, uh, intolerance and protest, we, I don't think it's without exception we hear. He's never done that before. He always allowed me to do that. He used to love when I kissed him between the ears at night before we go to bed. Now, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, typically refers to the maturation crossover.
1: You know the analogy I use all the time? Uh, When I was 15 years old, I had never snuck out of my house before. (laughs) It didn't keep me from trying it. Like I said, it was that natural maturation phase. I'm a little bolder and older than I normally am. uh, And I'm going to try new things. It's, It's a sign of intelligence, if you ask me.
2: Yeah. It is. And yeah. this with this confidence comes the uh, bolder actions that the younger dog was thinking a long time ago. But he said, man, I'm no match for you. But OK, how about this? A grouchy little boy it's six years old. He's not going to be challenging his mom or dad much. This grouchy little boy turns into a bully of a 21 year old man Yeah, he might be giving his mom and dad some real fits. You said, "Where did that come from?" He's never bullied us before. Well, but he was grouchy when he was six years old. Yes, and now that he has well crossed that maturation threshold, old enough, confident enough, experienced enough, he said, "You know what? I've tolerated all. I'm going to tolerate from you. I'm not going to take that anymore." And it seems like to the unaware, it's out of nowhere it seems like it's a dr jekyll mr hyde experience and really it's not at all it's just the moment has arrived he is mature now he's he's blossomed he's bloomed and now he's going to act but the temperament was there all along in most cases
0: yeah and, and grant I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point too about uh, your dog that displayed some protest uh, at an early age because it, it, it emphasizes this point right that we talked about a little bit more in the last episode that these are not necessarily signs that your dog is a bad dog right I mean well, these hope. are these stem from drive that is inherent in the dog that you just have to channel in a positive way uh, in in lots of circumstances so
2: and here's uh, what I think. this is an excellent opportunity to tie this back into the theme of this podcast the title of this podcast Forge of Freedom Grant and I, Alex Kliosh, we purposely choose assertive, protective, um, territorial, uh, defensive canine personalities that we channel into bodyguard-like canine companions. We want the freedom to do that in this country. That also means that we need to be accountable, responsible, to contain and train the canine so that he doesn't offend or infringe upon the rights or comforts of anybody else. I want my dog to keep any villain out of my house at all costs, that's your job. Do not in any way threaten or hurt the delivery man, who in essence, I pay to bring packages to my house. Do not threaten or hurt my neighbor who is not trying to break in my house? If I want the bodyguard to guard my house, I need to also be able to protect my neighbor and the UPS man. And this gets back to what we talk about all the time with the whole the freedom concept: the freedom to carry a gun, uh, the freedom to drive on the road comes with responsibilities and accountability. Dog ownership, oh my gosh, it is it's a living handgun. Oh my gosh, yes, and to think. How abused that is, that freedom. Well, everybody has a right to own a dog that you let run the neighborhood loose and crap in everybody's yard. Is that okay? Uh, uh, bite um, the, the neighbor, uh, hike his leg over my neighbor's new tires? Uh, that That is abusing that freedom. We don't want to lose the freedom with our dogs. And then we talk about the walking bridge at one time. The walking bridge uh, over the Ohio River. Uh, How long was that open for dogs? 30 days. And so many folks allowed their dogs to defecate on the bridge without picking it up. Out of frustration, there were actually stool stations on the bridge. We have to close it. We can't. We have to close off the dogs. The freedom to have dogs on that bridge was so abused because of lack of responsibility and accountability they had to ban dogs from that bridge. So no, we now us accountable, responsible dog owners, don't have the freedom to take our dogs across that bridge because that freedom was abused so much.
0: Yeah. No, I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Matthew, because that's that's you're right. That gets to the to the theme of this podcast and, and to the theme of your book, right? I mean, these yep. books are about teaching people to be responsible dog owners and about yes. building a positive relationship with your dog. And uh, so so I love that that you mentioned that. Um, We've got two more categories of aggression here, two more triggers for aggression to discuss, uh, possessive aggression and social aggression. Uh, Grant, you alluded earlier that that maybe there was some overlap, I think, between uh, we talked about protest and intolerance and then maybe intolerance into possessive uh, aggression. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about what possessive aggression is and uh, how, how to identify those, those triggers and how to address that behavior?
1: Yeah. Uh, I hate to keep bringing it up, but it all comes back to manners. What is the dog's and what is not the dog's? Um, and a good way to put that is your dog owns and possesses nothing. Your dog did not go to work to buy the toys that they use. They did not go to work to pay for the food that you're supplying them. And I think a lot of people look at that harshly, but it's a reality of life, meaning if one day I hope to have kids and my dog has his favorite bone, my kid should be free to walk up and take that bone out of his mouth without any repercussions on my death, Right? Uh, a lot of our rules revolve around just that, this idea of safety or manners. Mm. Uh, food control is not just so I can spill my, my cornflakes on the ground and my dog doesn't eat them. Uh, it's if I go to visit my grandmother and she's taking medication and that hits the ground, I'm trying to keep my dog safe from eating things and ingesting things that can hurt them. Um, this idea of possession aggression, summed up in word, is, is treasure. Uh, what your dog has decided is their treasure, um, this word overlaps into intolerance a little bit, is, look, I'm cool with you sitting on that side of the kitchen as I chew on my treasure, but as soon as you start closing that distance, and you can get overlap into defensive as well, uh, as soon as you start closing that distance, I've made the decision you've gotten too close to my treasure, and I'm going to take action to keep you away from it. Um, and it comes back to self preservation. You know, if you're, you're in a wolf pack and you're a pushover with your possessions, you're not going to make it very far. So, again, it's a very natural thing for a dog to have. But if addressed at a young age, it, you can usually quash it almost altogether. Um, you allow a dog to be possessive aggression or aggressive for two to three years. You're talking about a, a real capable dog that you're going to have to deal with now when it comes to taking a bone out of his mouth, uh, having your kid walk by as he's feeding from his feeding bowl. Um, that overlap, again, could almost be said for every one of these uh, yeah. th- these faces, these triggers, whatever you want to call them, and it, and it all comes back to this concept. I have to be seen as my dog's team leader. Um, not this alpha dominating and intimidating, but, but the guy that, that does call the shots. The same way I'd submit to him when it comes to a, a question about a dog, this word submission gets thrown as you know, your dog tucks his tail and rolls over. Submitting is just, I, I it's deference, as, really. you know, it's, as an hey, intelligent pretty, being, yeah. I know you have more going on about dog. I, I defer, I submit to his decision. Um, it's the same as a dog submitting to me in the way that when I say I need you to drop your bone, you drop your bone. I wasn't asking you to drop it. My kids around us or, um, you know, you can think of a million situations where you need this kind of team leadership follower role. And, and, and a lot of people overlook that. They look at it as overbearing with the dog until they experience a dog that's three years old and is now biting kids because they got too close to his food bowl.
2: And again, a number of points
1: here um, that
2: we probably should uh, revisit here at this point, at this stage. Um, it's old school to think of master, dominant. Um, you don't need a relationship role like that with your dog to be an effective leader team leader team captain dance leader uh, that is much more appropriate and i think more accurate in the actual relationship that we're dealing with and again when we go to our personal dogs if we want our personal dogs to be confident bodyguards they can't be coward i don't alex kliash doesn't want his dog toto to belly up to him because Alex walks in the room. He needs a confident bodyguard. But at the same time, when Alex says, Toto, I need you to stand down. Don't wanna argue about it. Defer to me, Toto. I'm the team captain. I'm the dance leader. Now that is the more productive, modern way to look at a human dog relationship. Um, And when we talk about this possessiveness we use the word treasure on purpose, not food possession, because I we can't tell you how many times a dog says, you can take my food out of the pan. That didn't mean anything to me. But this ballpoint pen that hit the floor, he said, what in the world is that? He said, that is, what is this? And, and let me grab my pen. Get back here. I got to see what this is. It's a treasure. And it could be, Something very um, uh, forbidden, like a piece of trash out of the garbage can. A meat wrapper out of the garbage can. He says, yeah, you can take my dog food, don't care about that. But this meat wrapper. I don't know. This is special. So treasure possession, it, and again, it goes back to what Grant said. It is self-preservation. You can imagine in a wild state, the more resource I control as an individual canine, Mm, The higher my chance of survivability, actually the higher my chance of passing on my genetic material, and that is the only thing that's important in the wild as far as survival, I need to pass on genetic material. That means I need resources at my disposal, I need to control as much of that as possible. So the possessive type of personality in the wild, probably going to be the one that passes on more puppies. You think, well, yeah, so it's a good characteristic of a dog. It is. Most of our personal working dogs have that tendency that we curb early on, and we're not even attracted to dogs who don't have that. So in other words, we want the survivors, but we teach them early. Hey, I know this is potent for you. I know you want to possess all the items, but I lead the dance. I'm the team captain, and I'm going to prove it to you in a very healthy, safe, positive manner. I'm approved to you over and over and over again. So no matter as you reach maturity, no matter how confident you become, you know, boy, that pork chop bone hit the floor, drooling for that. love to have that, but I'm going to wait for the team captain to give me the go ahead because he's proven over months and years, possessions are his and he's very generous with what he gives me. And that's an important part.
1: Right. Yeah, that, that yeah, yeah.
0: With sharing. with that point, yeah. I think it's a good good time to discuss. Well, two things. I think I'd like you to discuss before we move on to the social aggression trigger. Um, it, t- can you talk a little bit about the the importance of a drop command, or maybe a, even a leave it command, uh, and then also about avoiding building up this possessive aggression. So, it, for yeah. instance, like with the food, you talk about this in the book. Uh, if your dog doesn't display possessive aggression, don't instill it in them by messing around with them during feeding time, for instance. Um, so can, would you mind to talk about those, t- those two things?
2: Yeah, I'll talk about the drop a little bit. You can talk about how to appropriately handle feeding time, especially those dogs of voracious appetite. Yeah. Uh, the dropping, Uh with many items with our dogs, they're allowed to have, uh, a ball, a tug, a bone. It could even be I'm sharing a steak with him. There's nothing wrong with me doing that with my dog if I want to. I'll give him what I want to give him. He can possess it until I say, I need it now. Now I need you to release it, drop it, give, let it go, out, whatever the case may be. We teach that with all of our dogs, with innocent, I'm going to say benign, benign items initially. So. Yeah. Like it's it's, um, let, let's call a benign item um, a a perpetual toy. Uh, let's say a chuck it ball or a rope uh, tug. So it's something that's around that we play with often that is not going to be consumed. And this is typically his toy or we play with it together. So it is, uh, for us, changed out from his possession to my possession to my possession to his possession back and forth. Okay. That's where we first develop the release command. And we don't have to go through the steps of how to do that now, but everything we do initially is done with leash and collar to make sure we control the uh, parameters of the experience. But we teach our dogs with benign items first. Give, and he drops the ball. Uh, Drop, give, and he drops the rope bone. All right, now. And for reward. Yes, Uh, and we trade that. That behavior is followed up. Variably by reward. Hey, morning, I love go. that. And you gave me the ball. How about a tug? You gave me one ball. I give you another one. Uh, you gave me the rope bone. I give you a piece of food. Uh, you gave me uh, the chew bone you've been chewing on. I'm going to give you good touch, good talk, and we're going to do something else positive. But you're right. We first teach the drop with a benign item with user reward And we use leashes and collars for controlling devices. Once that's clean, and I have now uh, a non-debated drop. So when I say to my dog with his benign items, drop, and he does, good. Now I can move to more potent treasures. Um, The uh, natural bone that has uh, natural meat. Articles on it and sometimes substantial. He said, Oh my God, June you know, on this thing. He said, Now that is special. I need him also when I say, Drop, let that go. And we still teach that initially with leash and collar. I don't start with that potent treasure. I start with the least valuable treasure, moving to the most valuable treasure, so that I make it doable for the dog. Because innately Self-preservation says this is life. It's sustenance. I can't give that up. I love you, man, but I can't drop this. I need habitual response to drop before I get to those really potent treasures. Does that make sense? So drop or give is a positive command, taught like any other positive command. And we start with the simplest. Environment for that command response, moving to the more natural, the more challenging, like we do with a sit exercise. So, now getting into things like food possessiveness or not allowing the dog to become hoggish or controlling with his food station yeah. is not really about drop. It's and again, Grant will walk you through that. Well,
1: it's the same as any manner, and if I can define manner as would be my everyday, unspoken, never changing expectation. Right, meaning uh, this concept of leave it, I think, is overused. Um, I use leave it for form. items my dog is already allowed to have. So, say they're you know my dogs are tugging on a rope bone right before we go to bed. Um, I don't want to have to you know walk out in my garage, hide my toy in order for my dogs to leave it alone. So I would tell them drop. And again, the the importance of knowing your dog is clear on what this word means it makes it so much easier to reinforce it with a a, a real valuable treasure. Right. Um, but leave it is something I use on something you're normally allowed to play with. I'm telling you to drop it. I'm even putting it somewhere that's accessible to my dog, but I'm telling them, leave it. We're done playing with that for right now, right? Unless I initiate play with it again, I don't want you to bother. Leave it is not used uh, for, for sniffing a dog's butt, is not used for you know hopping up on my table and stealing food. These are unspoken expectations, meaning this is something I need from you on a daily basis because I'm not always going to be there to tell you leave it. Whereas with the toy that I want you to stop playing with, I'm gonna be there to tell you leave it, right? Um, And to the point you made earlier, we hear about this all the time. uh, Well, I stick my hand in this food bowl every (laughs) night. And it's like, and a lot of people wonder why their dog became food aggressive. I (laughs) I always say, how would you feel if I came over to your house every evening when you're eating dinner? I grab your plate and I pull it from you. Just to prove I can do that, right? right? So again, if it's not an issue, don't bring it up now. Does that mean, Every once in a while, don't test the waters with your dog. I think that's very important at a young age to find out how tolerant is your dog uh, around his food. Um, but that guaranteed meal every single night is not generally where we see intoler- or, uh, yeah. possession aggression. That's something he's going to get tomorrow night. You could take it from him, dump it in the trash can in front of him. He's going to wait until tomorrow night to eat again or tomorrow morning. Uh, it goes back to novelty, right? This pen that This pin I've never seen before. I, I want to examine that, and it almost as an intolerance in itself, I want to examine it, get away from me while I figure out what this is.
2: Can and whether I, or not I want, whether or not it has value to me. Yeah. Because in the very instant that it occurs, and the ballpoint pen is a, a very uh, off um, subject kind it, of usually item. usually
1: weird item. It is, but it, it is.
2: can be, uh, we had one, uh, young boy bitten over um soldier a plastic soldier falling from the table and it hit the floor and his little spaniel was down on the table and he reached to get it and the spaniel said hey back off huh? what's this hmm. about and so it is that very kind of thing and what we want to teach before we get into the accidental exposures we want to teach under controlled conditions all the things that we're exposed to here, you and I belong to me. And I'll make it clear you can have this until I say it's enough. And when I say leave it, that means we're, we're walking out of this treasure zone and the treasure remains. And also you can imagine this, when folks that are constantly pushing early on, especially the the concept of your food bowl while you're eating, I will be able to stick my hand in it. I'm going to be able to put rest of my hand on your back. I want to be able to move the food bowl. Oftentimes what they create is a hoggish eater. So the dog's saying, okay, you put food ball down. I got to get busy because you're going to be coming over here to disturb me. So I'm going to have to inhale it, wolf it down. They're they're creating issues that did not exist. You say, but I want to make sure this doesn't turn into a problem. Okay, work with that first with benign items, Mm -hmm. then more potent treasures. When you get to the actual food bowl, it's a non-issue already. You've already established your relationship about items and treasures and who controls them.
0: Perfect All right, uh, well let's before we wrap up here, let's talk about the last trigger, the last face of, of aggression, uh, social aggression. What, what is social aggression and how do you identify
1: that? Social aggression is a tough one to work with. Um, it's a bully it's it, a bully within the family It's a within the social unit. You can almost say it's a bolder version of intolerance yeah uh, in the way that Intolerance, you know, I don't, I don't want you sitting it's and Yeah, yeah, I don't want you sitting and bumping me as we're on the couch. But if you're sitting on a love seat across the room, I really don't mind. Uh, social aggression, w- which we see a lot of this in this this regard, is me and Matt are close, obviously, and I come up and I want to say, "Hey, how are you doing?" And his dog decides I- in my house that is not okay with me, and I'm going to let you all know that by leaving the couch, coming all the way over here, and barking at both. of you. All right, right, and, if, and you think.
2: Well, maybe the dog felt threatened. No, no, he didn't like Grant overstepping what he thought were the acceptable parameters. So again, I like what you said about um, the social aggression. Is this intolerance carried to the next step? More certain. It's a bolder version of mm-hmm. intolerance. And you already see us often. You see this for, and often when we say social aggression, we're talking about within the family social unit. That's why if it gets, you're talking about members outside of this unit, usually there are other uh, categories of this aggression that bleed over and are more controlling there for description anyway. So social aggression is is the uh, relationship management within a micro family. And this is uh, one house dog to another house dog A dog to a cat, a dog to a young person, a dog to Uncle uh, Billy who came over to visit, a dog to his owner, the handler, the primary handler. And often you can see the challenge in the socially aggressive canine mind. Uh, Again, typically starts to occur just as the dog is reaching maturity at that 18 months to 36-month mark And often the challenge is overt. It's clear. This dog walks to another dog. And it could be a younger, upcoming uh, male or female and an older, more established dog or a young person. The uh, socially aggressive dog, the bully, makes an apparent position. Did you want some trouble with me? Did you ever think about having a little trouble with me? I think you sure? that we need to work out this <laughs> parameter now. It is a true pushiness. So you say, mm-hmm. well, how are you going to describe that? Was he intolerant? Well, no, this dog would not do anything. Uh, was he protesting? This dog wasn't trying to make anything happen. Was he defensive? Well, this dog didn't get into space. Territorial. No, we're all insiders here. Was it dog-on-dog aggression? Because it could be a human being in itself. You say, well, how do you describe that? We describe that as one member of the social structure taking control, asserting himself, herself with individuals for the purpose of establishing a hierarchy, a dominant position. That is social aggression, unique in the way it's managed. And again, very challenging to manage because it's all about personality and personality. And I think this, this often happens. We have a very Uh, peaceful, meek let's say a human handler and we have a dog that came into this world bold and assertive and pushy and physical and intolerant and hostile what a force to be reckoned with and this personality says, look, I, I don't want any part of that I just want to get along oh, the dog says, I think you just want to get along and I think I can lead this tango dance, and I don't think you are going to do anything about it, are you? It's oh, you are not doing anything about it. This becomes a pattern. Guess what else happens? It becomes very self rewarding. Dog says, "I like pushing you around." And then that one time, this <laughs>
1: person stands up. That's when. Oh, yeah. That's when you usually see the worst of it. Uh, it's when mom's finally had enough of the dog bullying around feeding time, and she goes to take action, and the dog says, "Remember our relationship? As I-, I tell you where to go and when to go there, right?" Um,
2: Very challenging uh, case or scenarios for us to handle, because in a lot of cases, most of them, the the personality, the the handler that needs to control the bully doesn't have, wasn't born with the tools to do that. Meaning they're not as assertive or as comfortable with conflict as the dog is. So then we have to say, okay, you have to pretend you're going to have to act. You're going to have to create artificially those Temperamental tools to manage this force—very, very challenging.
0: Yeah, you uh, in the book you give this example of, of a dog named Basher, and uh, this interaction that that he had w- with uh, the own, the handlers, the owners, uh, but also their 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 daughter, right? Um, yes, um, yeah. and, the whole family and,
1: aspect.
0: Yeah, would you, would you mind just to talk a little bit about mm-hmm. about that example and how? Uh, the yes. bullying, uh, sort of, yeah, impacted that situation oh my because gosh. I think yeah, it,
2: the, yeah. the bullying from this dog defined the relationship uh, of this dog with each member of the family. And I, I, when we say this dog was turned on by this bullying, this pushing, that's an understatement. He lived, yeah. Oh, he yeah. lived to push these people, and I mean dangerously. Uh, Again, kudos to his handler who learned to manage and train dogs and gave this dog a full, long healthy, happy life when very human beings could have done that this dog was a force to be reckoned with he was strong, he was hostile, had, uh, when we talk about the concept of bite inhibition most dogs will threaten first, uh, lip curl so you can see my teeth, growl, bark, aurora, lunge, posture, bristle, anything to get the effect so I don't have to make contact. Because making contact is dangerous, potentially dangerous for me too. This dog, little bite a inhibition. He said, oh, I love the contact. He said, I don't want to threaten you too much because you might run away. I want the conflict. I want to feel the effects of bullying. And we are not kidding. He was that way relentlessly from the time he was a, I would say older pup, not even a young adult. I
1: think he rescued him at
2: like three months or something. Yes, he was a young dog. And again, a very dog savvy, capable handler who started off early starting to structure this dog's life. He said, well, this dog must have been emotionally off balance. No, he was just that confident. And he was that turned on by physical conflict. And he ended up, uh, and, and it's, it's all true laid out in the book, he ended up being a dependably uh, nice, uh, affectionate, interactive family member. But it was through his handler's consistent, relentless reinforcement of the rules establishing me and my wife lead the tango dance and you follow. And he said, you know, I tested you every which way to Sunday. And I agree with you. You lead the tango dance. So he said, so let's run with it. Now, still, the dog was very uh, territorial, very defensive. Mm -hmm. And outsiders come in to the house. Uh, The owner had to be on high guard because this dog was looking for an opportunity to push somebody around. But it was, it turned out to be a very successful story outcome because of the basic principles of canine behavior shaping laid out in the appropriate layers over an extended period of time. So, again, kudos to his owner. There's an exceptional, exceptionally dangerous situation that came out as a, a better with a better end result than I would have ever imagined.
0: Yeah. And this is just another example. You, I think you said this maybe in the first episode that we recorded, that there are very few dogs that can't be taught to live with their family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As long as that, as long as those principles that we talked about in the 10 natural steps, and then also here in the, the eight faces of aggressive behavior are consistently applied. And I, I like the way you summarize it. Uh, in the book here, toward the end of the uh, uh, the chapter about social aggression, uh, you say that almost every socially aggressive dog we work with at the training center will stand down if he's met with a four-prong response for a period of time. You say several months here, but I'm sure that varies, right, depending on the degree of aggressiveness. Um, first prong, a well-thought-out training plan. Second, the utilization of appropriate equipment. Third, effective handling techniques, and fourth, the proper environmental controls, and well, it, just it, like you say, it, as long as those are applied consistently uh, over time, uh, you can overcome this this aggressive, sometimes dangerous, aggressive behavior.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. In fact, I would say rare that we would ever suggest to somebody. And we have. It's rare that we would suggest to somebody, look this isn't going to work out in your favor. The risk of injury is way too high. The dog is way too dangerous. You need to abort here.
1: Training is not the answer. That is rare. Well, we're blessed with amazing clients in that regard. I agree. Once people see the the capacity of their dog's knowledge um, and really, I think it's truly understanding the dog personality types. Once they see that, a lot of our clients, let's say 98% of them are willing to do the hard stuff. They're willing to you know, push through, because I do love this dog, even though, you know, I have a client, and his dog bit both of his kids in the space through intolerance. It was, you know, he told me normally they allow or he allows them to cuddle with him. And, and now he's not right. And this guy stuck with it all the way through training. And he said, they're back cuddling. They're still having a great time. Now there were lifestyle changes. And that's the hardest thing for people mm-hmm. is I don't want my dog to be territorial, but I'm not willing to put them in a crate. Um, so where are you going to keep them in the backyard? Your, your dog's going to be territorial. Right. Uh, If you're not willing to take these steps leading up to it, because again, if I only have three hours to train every single day, um, you can't train a dog for that long consistently anyway, but he's getting six hours in the yard where he's getting that perpetual uh, loop of reward, it doesn't matter how much time I put in towards the end of the day, that outweighs the value of my my expectations.
0: Well, Grant, Matthew, I I think that's where where we'll leave it for now, but before we Mm -hmm. close up, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, to promote uh, your books. Once again, Matthew uh, and, and Grant, if you'd like to say anything in closing to him, uh, uh, I'd like you to uh, both take an opportunity to, to talk about the training center there, talk about your books and anything else you'd like to, to discuss before we close up.
2: Well, here's what I would say. We keep busy. We see roughly 800 new canine faces a year, year in, year out. That's our experience base. It's hard to match that anywhere else in the world. Um, and I would tell any of your listeners, uh, I don't think you're going to stump us with a situation or a problem that we can't help you to some degree. Uh, the books are insights. Uh, think of it as a coach at home. However, there is no substitute for hands-on in-person instruction and think of the tango dance analogy. You can buy the best book on the market to learn how to tango dance. So without an instructor guiding your feet and your hands and your body positions to teach the tempo and rhythm, really hard to pick some of those things up from the book itself. You can do it, but the books are one of the tools. So are pieces of equipment coming in person, uh, even our uh, our video instruction can be very, very helpful to any of your folks that maybe even have a, a simple uh, task they want to accomplish, a, a benign behavior one to work on. We're, we're here to do that for you anytime.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I uh, want to emphasize this point about the importance of, of in-person instruction because uh, I certainly, I, I know I've mentioned this in maybe it was the first episode we recorded together episode 74 but i had read a ton of material about dog training from lots of different sources and i had a difficult time sorting through the good and and the bad and and frankly your material was the first time i'd encountered the concept of manners as opposed to uh formal obedience uh that you encounter at most training programs especially at more of the -the run-of-the-mill training programs uh, so I really, that, that concept of manners, I thought really clicked with me in, in forming a, a great relationship with your dog and one that can be enjoyable and, and long lasting. Uh, but unless you have that experience of that in-person training of, of learning how to lead the dance, uh, it, it's difficult to apply on your own, uh, at home by just reading the book. Like you say that these books are, are your coach at home, but for me they're much more valuable after I had taken the, the in-person training because yes. I've gotten, I've, I've seen the in-person training. I can, I, I can visualize it. I've done it. I can feel it. I've developed that relationship with my dog and I can refer back to the books where I need it. Uh, so, so I, I really wanted to, to emphasize that point that you make about uh, the importance of in-person training. Now you do a free evaluation, right? I, I know you did when I went through the program, oh, at yes, Duffy you, you still do that, right?
2: Well, and again, what you can think of, or any of your listeners, the first visit here is free instruction. We need to assess your dog, the situation, what you want to gain, but we need to handle the dog while you're here so we can uh, be accurate about what we can accomplish, how long will it take, how many lessons we suggest. And we tell everybody this. We'll send you out the door from the evaluation with better control than you came in with. We'll send you out the door with homework, and it costs nothing. It's a 45 minutes and hour long appointment where we get to know each other, but we don't expect any clients to come in here and trust us with their precious four-legged family member without hanging out with us for a bit, without knowing us, without watching us work. So this is a um, two-way interaction here. We need to see the dog, but we want the, the um, prospective clients to see us, listen to us, hang out with us, and uh, develop a relationship with us.
0: Yeah, and and go to the training because this is mm-hmm. about training you, the handler, uh, more than it is about training the dog, right? I mean, oh, you I can – Matthew, Grant, you can develop a relationship with somebody's dog, and they can perform perfectly in the training center. But then they go home and forget it all, right?
1: Yeah, they, don't they haven't developed they that the, relationship. They don't need the to get home
2: and also change that verbiage a little bit, and they don't forget. They get home and realize, oh, I remember, I don't forget, I remember this is Alex Uli, not Grant Foster. Okay, now I remember the rules. So it is a remembering, not a forgetting.
0: Right, yeah, great point. Um, All right, well, Grant, Matthew, thank you so much for for joining the 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 show.
1: I I enjoyed
0: it. Uh, I hope, I know I learned a lot by by reading your books. Uh, I'd read your your 10 Natural Steps book uh, some years ago. I don't know how many years ago it's been now, eight or nine probably. Uh, So it was great to revisit that book and and to talk with you both. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again.
2: And Alex, if you haven't yet, dive into this Franklin book. This is an enjoyable read. Dog training put to real life. This is an adventure. It's not a how-to. I think you're going to love that one. I mean, it's for fun.
0: Yeah. No, I, I look forward to, to diving in. I, I haven't read it just yet, but I, uh, I've got a copy of it here in front of me, uh, courtesy of you. So thank you for that. And I'll, oh, wow. I'll certainly uh, read through it. I look forward to it. Uh, so so thanks again. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope our, our listeners enjoyed it as well and, and learned a little something. Uh, and I just want to say here in closing too, and this is a point that Matthew, you brought up earlier. Why am I talking about dog training? Why are we talking about dog training on this podcast? Well, we of course want to our listeners to be responsible dog owners so that we can continue to enjoy uh, the companionship of dogs uh, for future generations and to have more freedom with our dogs for future generations. Uh, but also there's a multifaceted uh, approach, right? That that there's the responsible dog ownership component, but there's also the, the component of just having a dog that's not a burden, That's that's something yeah. that enhances our life and our lifestyle. Okay. And I think Personally
2: that if- freedom. Yeah. Right.
0: Exactly. Uh, so I think if, if, you, if you do internalize these concepts that, uh, that are contained in this book and that are taught there at Duffy's Training Center about developing that positive, balanced relationship with your dog, about learning that canine tango dance, uh, I think you can have a positive and fulfilling relationship with your dog and your family. Uh, so, uh, I know I, I care a lot about, uh, firearms. We talk a lot about that on this show, uh, but I also love dogs and think that they can be a, a huge, uh, a huge component of our life and, a, and a, a huge enhancement to our life. So, uh, I hope everybody will, uh, read the books, uh, if you're in the area, go check out Duffy's Dog Training Center and, uh, of course, check out the links, uh, to the, in the show notes so that you can purchase the books on Amazon. So,
1: and uh, check thank- us out on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook now. We're starting a social media, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of training all in, all in one. Oh,
0: excellent, excellent. Uh, and I've got the website to the, to the training center here too, whitefangventures.com. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can find it, I think, just by Googling Duff, Duffy's Dog Training as well. And I'll link to those uh, social media links as well.
1: Thanks. you. So, thank you, sir.
0: All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. I I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like and subscribe to help us spread the message of freedom. And until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next
2: time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.